Many people believe that Bobby Fischer was the greatest chess player to have ever lived. In 1964, at the age of 21, he played a chess exhibition against 50 of the world's best chess players. So picture it. Or maybe you've seen something like it in a movie. Each of these 50 players is only playing one match of chess, but Bobby Fischer is playing 50 matches at once. And Fischer ended up winning 47 of those 50 matches. Well, in Matthew 22, we find Jesus in multiple chess matches, theological chess matches, not all at once, but one right after another, like artillery rounds being fired at him. His opponents are the best and brightest theological minds of Judaism in his day. They represent all different sects and parties of Judaism. And each is throwing down their best challenge, their best stumper, their best gotcha question. And one by one, Jesus answers them, refutes them, and silences them. Remember, again, the context? It's Tuesday of the Passion Week, just three days from the crucifixion. Jesus has caused quite a stir by the way he entered Jerusalem, riding on a donkey like a king, receiving the praise of the people as he did. Jesus caused quite a stir in the temple when he turned over the tables of the money changers and threw them out. The religious leaders then approached him with that important question. We keep circling back to it so that you don't forget it. Chapter 21, verse 23, they say, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus only subtly and indirectly answers that question by giving three parables. We've been seeing those in recent weeks. There was the parable of the two sons. There was the parable of the wicked tenants. And then last week we saw the parable of the wedding feast in the first 14 verses of chapter 22. Now for this week, within this same setting, it's the same day with the same people, the same place, we see now three challenges that are put to Jesus from these religious leaders. And here is that multiplayer chess match that I was speaking of. Just look down in your Bibles and see it with me. Verses 15 to 22, there the question is about taxes. And then in verses 23 to 33, there's a question about marriage in heaven. And then in verse 34 in following, there's another question about the greatest commandment. We'll take the first two of those challenges this week. And we can loosely refer to them under the familiar headings, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, death and taxes. 
death and taxes. Now, while these questions are fascinating, and while Jesus' answer to these questions are profound, we can't miss the context, and that's why I belabor the point. These are challenges meant to stump Jesus, to get him to say something incriminating. These are challenges in view of the cross. They are asked in the shadow and just three days away from the cross. So with that in mind, let's read the first of these debates. We'll read the second after we study the first together. Matthew 22, starting in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. We can call this debating taxes. Debating taxes. The question is put to Jesus by a strange alliance. The disciples of the Pharisees with the Herodians. Of course, the Pharisees are those strict religious conservatives we've read much about in Matthew's gospel. They were the real patriots of Judaism in those days. Jewish nationalists, we might say. While the Herodians were... They were the liberal progressives among the Jews in their day. They were all about maneuvering for political advancement and power. As their name implies, they were supportive of Herod, Rome's puppet king put over Judea. These Herodians benefited from the status quo, and Jesus threatened the status quo. And so these two groups, who agreed on very little, who liked each other very little, they agree on this. Stop Jesus. Get him in trouble. And so they partnered up to that end. They come to Jesus first with some flattery. Verse 16, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. You don't care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances. Of course, all that was true. That was demonstrated countless times before in Matthew. But they are not sincere about this. This is just flattery. And perhaps also it meant to egg Jesus on, you know, to make sure that he wouldn't be shy about his answer. We know you won't hold anything back, Jesus, so you better let this one fly. They wanted to entangle him in his words. The question they ask 
is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It's black and white, two choices. It's a darned you do, darned if you don't kind of question, especially from these two different parties. Again, the Herodians were pro-Roman, and they happily supported the system. The Pharisees were anti-Rome, and they would, if pay tax, only pay tax begrudgingly and not very loudly. Of course, most common people in these days, most common Jews, would have sided with the Pharisees on this issue. Isn't it true? Almost every culture, every time, most people prefer less taxes. But taxes in this context, with, with Jews paying tax to Rome, that would be especially onerous. The Romans had overtaken and occupied their promised land. Any tax paid to Rome was a reminder of that. Especially this tax. This tax was called the head tax, the head tax or the poll tax. It was based on the census, and every adult male had to pay it just, just for living in Roman territory. It was a denarius a year. A denarius was uh, a day's wage among wage laborers, day laborers, maybe 120 bucks in our day. It wasn't that much, but it represented the real problem, the real rub. And so if Jesus says yes to this question, yes, pay tax to Caesar, then Jesus is no revolutionary. He is no patriot. In fact, he's a Roman sympathizer, and it's proof that his friendship with tax collectors like Matthew has indeed corrupted him. But if Jesus says no to the question about paying tax to Caesar, well, then he will, of course, be seen as a radical revolutionary, a troublemaker, a seditionist. It was just two decades before this that a Jew named Judas of Galilee led a revolt against Rome in part because of their taxation on the Jews. And do you know how it went for Judas and his followers? They were all crucified. That's what they're hoping will happen with Jesus. So how does Jesus answer their tricky question? He points out their hypocrisy in verse 18. But then he asks for the coin that would be paid for such a tax. Anyone have a denarius on you? Rather ironically, the Opponents of Jesus here do have this Roman coinage with them. Jesus then asked them in verse 20, whose likeness, literally whose image, whose imago is on this coin? And what does the inscription say? A denarius in these days would have had the face of Caesar Tiberius on one side, and the inscription on that side of the coin would read, Tiberius, Caesar, Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. The other side of the coin had an image likely of Tiberius' mother, 
And the inscription on that side read, High Priest. Son of God, High Priest. Do you see how blasphemous this would be for the Jews? So we might expect Jesus to take this coin and throw it to the moon. But instead he says something so revolutionary, so profound, so earth-shattering. Verse 21, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. This was not a non-answer. This was not dodging their question. This was not an enigma. This was something radically new, history-altering. Jesus here said more, not less than what they asked. When Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he was clearly saying yes to paying the tax. Pay tax to Rome. That in in and of itself is astounding. But he was also saying much more than that at least by implication. When he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, well, just think of that in light of Old Testament history. Do you see how radical and new that would have been? Here Jesus is detaching his followers from the Old Testament monarchy. Here Jesus is detaching his kingdom from, from what's called a theocracy. That's what we find throughout the Old Testament. Jesus is saying by implication that his kingdom is not only unlike the kingdoms of men like Rome, but it's unlike the Jewish kingdoms of the Old Covenant. As Jesus later puts it to Pilate at his trial, John 19 records it. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered over. But my kingdom is not of this world. I don't think King David would have said that. I don't think King David could have said that. But Jesus said it. This is new. And he was not only detaching his people from an earthly king and kingdom, but he was also, get this, he was legitimizing civil, secular government. Even imperfect government. Even idolatrous government. Another implication is that Jesus was here detaching his people from any one single nation and government that they might be an international people. An international people. Isn't that the essence of the Great Commission with which Matthew ends his book, chapter 28, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. Isn't that the end of the Bible? 
Revelation 5 and chapter 7 both record what John saw in heaven, a multitude which no man can number from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. The kingdom went forth. It's going forth now. And this, in part, is where things changed. Now, elsewhere in the New Testament, the teaching of Jesus in this one sentence gets fleshed out by the apostles. There are four key passages. I'm going to read them to you. Four key passages. I encourage you just to write down these references and later go read them on your own. Because I'm just going to read them real fast. And I'll skip a bit. But one passage is Romans 13, 1 through 7. This is fleshing out what Jesus said in Matthew 22 and Mark 12. Paul said, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Verse 5, therefore one must be in subjection. Verse 6, because of this you also pay taxes. Verse 7, pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. If you didn't write it down yet, that's Romans 13, 1 through 7. But then there's 1 Peter 2, 13 to 15, where Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 15. The third I won't read, it's 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. Its unique com- contribution is that we should pray for civil leaders, pray for those in authority. But then there's also Titus 3, 1 through 2. Titus 3, 1 through 2 says, Be submissive to rulers and authorities. Be obedient. Be ready for every good work. Speak evil of no one. Listen carefully. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. And show perfect courtesy toward all people. Is it possible you forgot Titus 3, 2 is in the Bible? Is it possible your social media page has forgotten that Titus 3, 2 is in the Bible? Avoid quarreling. Speak evil of no one. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. The consistent and repeated testimony of the apostles is that we should pay taxes, obey the laws that don't conflict with God's law. I'll talk about that in a bit. We should show respect and honor. We shouldn't speak rudely. And we should pray for those in authority. Now, no government is perfect. Some are better than others. And some are real bad. That's what Psalm 2 is all about, which Corin read earlier. The nations often 
rage against the sun. Revelation 13 says governments can sometimes be like the beast. But ideally, and dare I say normally, governments do two things. They limit evil and they facilitate some good. They limit evil and they facilitate some good. And when they do that, the apostolic record insists they are instruments of God. Therefore, submitting to and honoring those institutions, even financially supporting those institutions, is one way to honor God. Now, I would say that in a republic like ours here in the United States, another way in which we honor the government is actually by our involvement in and seeking to improve things. There's a sense in which in our country, Caesar is we the people. We like that. And rightly so. At least we get to vote on our representatives. We're involved in the government not just submitting to the government. So, so we vote, we engage, we seek to persuade. And we should vote for those things that best promote the flourishing of humanity. We should vote for those things that don't reward evil, but instead reward flourishing. Now, if you think that relates to lower taxes and smaller government, then vote away and seek to persuade away. But in the meantime, pay your taxes, obey the laws. When the speeding camera catches you, takes a picture and sends your bill in the mail like I got yesterday. <laughs> you pay it. You got me. Hope you put that hundred bucks to good use. <laughs> but we don't put our hope in government, even when it's good, even when it's kind of good, even when it's really good. We don't put our hope in secular government. The government is not God. And God is not the government. Government is good. It's instituted by God. But government is not God. Even though governments sometimes think that they are God, sometimes act like they are God, sometimes even insist that they are God-like. No. Government is not God. Even though we the people sometimes treat it like it is, or at least treat the next political savior like he or she is. Most of us don't have the temptation to think the United States government is God. <laughs> it's too messed up for that. <laughs> but you name the candidate, and you might begin to think, there it is. There's our hope. 
Yet Psalm 146 says, put not your trust in princes. It says that kind of trust is a stupid thing. I hope you see that any attempt to co-mingle God in government, the way some are trying to these days, will at least have you wrestling with what Jesus said here and making sense of it in light of those proposals. And I think you will have a hard time getting this to fit some models of God and country or Christian nationalism that are being proposed today. I have many of these books that propose various forms of Christian nationalism on my shelves. I looked through them this week for how they deal with this saying from Jesus. And not one that I could find mentions it. Meditate on that. Well, we're going to have a seminar in March, a three-hour seminar or so on politics, and that'll give us more time to think about these things then. But let me get to the other side of what Jesus said, because my time is escaping. Render to God the things that are God's. That's the other half and really the more important. I haven't given it as much time because I think it's easier to apply and less controversial. But we need to say that though government is good, government is not God, and God alone is God. And to him goes, what is God's? What is God's? What does he get? Caesar gets the coin. He gets honor. He gets a modicum of obedience. Sure, what what does God get? Everything. The image of Caesar was on the Roman coin. I think subtly we should be asking ourselves, what image is on us as human beings? What imago is on us? Well, the imago dei, the image of God. We bear his image, and so all of us to him belong. God gets our whole beings, our whole selves, our whole lives, all that we have, all that we are. Which means then that when Caesar's demands of us conflict with God's demands of us, we go with God. We go with God. Damn the consequences. We go with God. Daniel was such a good example of this in the Bible. He went along with what to eat and what to wear among the Babylonians, but when they told him not to pray in Daniel 6, he prayed and opened up the windows. When the three Hebrew children were told, not, were told to bow to the statue, they said, we will not bow, we will not bend, we will not break. In Acts 5, when the apostles were told to no longer speak the name of Jesus, they said, we must obey God rather than man. There is a time for civil disobedience. That time may come in this land in your lifetime. 
Are you prepared for it? Have you already drawn the lines that you will not cross? Draw them now before you're under the heat. But make sure you land on and emphasize the main point of what Jesus is getting at here. It's that we give to God what is God's, and to him all things belong. As Christians, we are twice bought, we might say. We are doubly his. You've been bought with a price. You're not your own. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies, 1 Corinthians 6. So glorify God, Christian, with your time, with your tongue, with your money, with your relationships, with your home, with everything, your, your thoughts, your affections, your web searches, all those things that are being talked about each Sunday in the spiritual disciplines class in our equipping hour, all those things. That's, that's part of giving to God what is God's. Now, before we move on, notice the response from Jesus' questioners. Verse 22, when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Jesus was asked a seemingly impossible question. A pretty impressive move on the chessboard. And with a mere sentence, he not only put his opponents in checkmate, he changed the world forever. Now, let's read on in our passage to the second round of debate. We'll give less time to this one. Verse 23, the same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring left, his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. So in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife shall she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Well, here we have debating marriage and the resurrection of the dead. Debating marriage and the resurrection of the dead. The opponents this time are the Sadducees. They were another sect of the Jewish leadership. They were more progressive, more hip than the Pharisees. But they were more conservative on this one single front. They only held to the first five books of our Old Testament, what we call the Pentateuch, 
the books of Moses. And related to that, here it says, Matthew tells us, verse 23, they believed that there is no resurrection. That's not referring to Jesus' resurrection, which hasn't happened yet. They're referring here to the final resurrection at the end of time. The resurrection of the dead. Eternal life, we might call it. The final judgment. Or the afterlife is how some people speak of it today. We might call it the new heaven and the new earth. Now that idea of an afterlife, eternal life, was very clear in passages outside the first five books of the Old Testament. It's in Daniel, Daniel 12, verse 2. Those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. It's in Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives and I will see him in my flesh on the latter day. But it was thought that this idea wasn't in the first five books of the Bible, hence the Sadducees didn't believe in it. So they asked this question, and really their question, the way it's asked, is meant to ridicule the idea of a resurrection. They used this agreed-upon biblical idea from the Old Testament that's called leveret marriage, leveret marriage, that is, if a wife becomes widowed, her deceased husband's brother must take in that wife as his own. That law protected widows and also helped to ensure a lineage from that man who was deceased. And so they take that biblical idea and then they hypothesize seven husbands, the woman marrying seven brothers, they ask incredulously, so in the resurrection, Jesus, the so-called resurrection you believe in, who gets her? Which of the seven brothers does she have? It's an absurd scenario. So Jesus answers in verse 29, you are wrong. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. They know not the scriptures. These are religious leaders. These are scholars. These were people who came to Jesus quoting the Bible. And Jesus said, you don't know your Bibles, what little of it you have. And you don't understand God's power. You know not the power of God. Then notice verse 30. For in the resurrection, the power and the resurrection, Jesus ties together. In denying the resurrection, they denied the power of God. God does have the power to raise us up at the end of time. He does have power over the grave. He does have power over death. He does have power to bring all to account. He does have power to give life and life forever, life to the fullest. How do we know? Well, Jesus answers by quoting Scripture. He quotes from their part of the Bible, the part they do agree with. Exodus 3.6 is what he quotes in our verse 32. 
were there, God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then Jesus comments, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. It's a subtle argument, but it's profound once you see it. Exodus 3.6 was spoken to Moses hundreds of years after the deaths of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, recorded in the book of Genesis. Hundreds of years after their death, God was saying to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob some hundreds of years ago. I am their God. The present tense matters. It means that he is still their God. They are dead, but now alive. They are still in covenant relationship with God. On the other side of the grave, hundreds of years later, and millennia years later now, they are alive. And this proves the eternality of the soul and that this life we now know on this earth is, is only part of the story. Now, you may have noticed that I conveniently skipped over part of verse 30 that talks about marriage in this context. Verse 30, in the resurrection, Jesus said, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Instead, they're like angels in heaven. I skipped that, that part first to establish that there is a resurrection of the dead. There is eternal life. There is life after this life. So let's now, in light of that, go back to probably for what most of us is the more difficult thing that Jesus said here. Not that there is eternal life, but that there's no marriage in heaven. Did Jesus just say that? Is that what we read? That there is no marriage in heaven? That's what he said. Notice that Jesus does not offer scriptural proof for that. He offered scriptural proof, Exodus 3, 6, for the eternality of God's relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But regarding marriage, Jesus simply says, it's not the way it is in heaven. Marriage is not the way it is in heaven. The implication is that he apparently has been there. He knows how things work there. He's from there. Jesus speaks authoritatively from his own experience. Ex-cathedra. And no one else can do this. No one else in the Bible dares do it. This is unparalleled authority and insight. He gives us heavenly insight that to my knowledge, the scriptures nowhere else tell us. Isn't that astounding? Jesus tells us something here that if he had not said it, I'm not sure we would ever know it until we got there. This dude's unique. This is no Bible teacher. This is a heaven dweller. 
And you say, well, that's great, but can we please go back to that no marriage in heaven bit? Why is that the case, even if it is the case? Why is that a good thing? I love my spouse. No marriage in heaven? Marriage on this earth is one of our best joys. When they're at their best, I know they're, for some of you, one of the biggest nightmares. But you have to know that there are some good marriages. There's nothing more beautiful than handing off a daughter in marriage, giving in marriage, being married. Oh, I love it. But we have to remember that marriage has always been a picture, an illustration of God's love for his people and his people's honoring of him. That concept is in Hosea. It's in Ephesians 5. It's referred to even at the end of the story regarding the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we're united to Christ, we are like his bride and he the groom and we will party and be married forever and ever. So as good and sweet as the best earthly marriages can be, they are only a shadow of a much bigger reality. Eternal life is where those greater realities become known and experienced and lived out forever and ever. God has the power to not only raise the dead and give us eternal life, and keep us in covenant relationship with him forever and ever. God has the power to so transform things, transform joys, transform relationships, that it's a whole new world. Jonathan Edwards put it like this. If we can learn anything of the state of heaven from the scriptures... The love and joy that the saints have there is exceeding great and vigorous, impressing the heart with the strongest and most lively sensation of inexpressible sweetness. It is mightily moving, animating, and engaging, making them like a flame of fire. Oh, I could take you to all the passages about heaven. John 14, Revelation 21 and 22, and others. Or I could just take you to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. No eye has seen, no ear has heard. It is not entered into the heart of man to imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. No one's seen it, no one's heard it, no one can imagine what God has prepared for those who are his. That's what heaven's like. Unthinkable, unimaginable. And so if you're single right now, or divorced, or widowed, I want you to know, and I say this with Jesus' authority, your best days are ahead. Whether or not marriage comes. 
Whether or not you are married in this life now, your best days are still ahead. The picture and the foreshadow of this great reality may elude you in this life or be delayed longer than you wish, but the reality and the substance and the fullness of it is yours in a new heaven and a new earth that will last forever. And that's yours now by way of promise. In heaven, not only will no one be married, get this, no one will be single. I mean, what is single but to distinguish from married? What is married but to distinguish from single? In heaven, our identity will be so tied to God and to Christ and to our redemption and to our praise and to his surpassing glory That'll be all we are and all we need and all we can imagine. And our relationship with others will be more fulfilling than even the best of marriages down here. Now, all this doesn't mean that our knowledge of earthly things will disappear when we enter heaven. I I don't think any of this likely means that we will relate relate to everyone in heaven equally the same, which would be an introvert's nightmare. (laughs) Best friends with everyone? (laughs) Probably doesn't mean that. It probably doesn't mean a lot of things that I could list right now, but I'm running out of time. But it does mean that God's presence and goodness and glory will be unimaginably better than the very best things this world, this earth has to offer us now. God has the power to do that. And we know that because Jesus said so, because Jesus has been there. That's what I think ties these two challenges in Matthew 22 together. What ties them together? I've been wondering about that this week. Beyond just that they are stumper questions, the best they could come up with. What else ties them together? These very different matters of taxes and marriage after death. I think what they have in common is that both groups... We're limiting God. Not only denying Jesus and trying to get him in trouble, they were limiting God. In each case, they thought far too little of God and his power and his plan. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Well, Jesus says, God is detaching his people from a geopolitical center and he is taking things global. So yes, pay your taxes wherever you are because you are now exiles in the world once again. Jeremiah 29, 11 is back on the playbook. Seek the welfare of the city. For here we have no lasting city. Who will be married, Jesus, in heaven? 
we know that there's no such thing. Jesus says, are you kidding? God has the power to not only raise us to eternal life and to be our God forever and ever, but he is transforming pretty much everything we know. And so all foreshadows and hints and whispers of his glory down here one day will become reality and substance and shouts. Good things await Christians. The question is, is that you? As for those who question Jesus in this second round, the Sadducees, there's no mention of how they responded. And that silence is certainly not good. The crowds are mentioned in verse 33. They heard it and they were astonished at his teaching. Astonished. Oh, be astonished at this. But be more than just astonished. Be trusting in, submitting yourself to this Jesus who not only said these things with this authority, but who also, just three days later, submitted himself to the cross as a payment for sin and was raised victoriously on the third day. It is he who now reigns on high and he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so, of course, he has the authority to forgive your sins, to cancel that debt out, and to bring you into relationship with him. He has the power to do it. He's already done it. Just believe it. Ask for it. Embrace it and receive it today. That's my prayer for you. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, we do pray for those here who haven't yet come to trust in this Jesus. Oh, this Jesus, our Savior and King, God in the flesh. May we hope in him and trust him all our days and trust what he has for us. Help us now as we sing, Lord, to just behold the wondrous mystery of Jesus' coming, his dying being raised, and reigning on high now. We pray in his name. Amen.